0: How very much I've loved you! How very much I've tried my best to give you a good life. He said. Jesus himself said, "The Son of God." In this law, he said, "One of all the law, and all the prophets." Childish manner. Scott and I impishly danced around his body before he was dead. Just. Strangely enough, it was a rush, a teenager's rush. They're coming to get you, Barbara. Yeah! Hey, y'all strangers, welcome to another episode of The Strange Talk. And uh, today's episode is going to be a very interesting one. I do, if I do say so myself, uh... Why am I talking kind of like the water boy, <laughs> sort of? I don't know. I just thought it would be stupid and funny to do. Uh, But today, we're going to be talking about disappearances now. And uh, a missing person is a person who has disappeared and whose status as alive or dead cannot be confirmed as a location of it not known. Okay? Uh, a person may go missing through a voluntary disappearance or as due to an accident, crime, death, and location where they cannot be found, uh, such as at sea now, okay? If they're in a boat, and they're going in the boat, going down that bayou, and they just, uh, you know, disappear. Uh, Because I tell you, them gators, uh, they make you disappear like nobody's business, or many other reasons. In most parts of the world, a missing person will usually be found quickly. Now, while criminal abductions are some of the most widely reported missing person cases, these account for only two to five of the missing children in all of Europe now. (laughs) <laughs> so I'm going to stop doing that because I'm pretty sure half of the you listening to this just decided like what the fuck and just decided to get off. But to get serious now, yes, we're going to be talking about a few cases of uh, strange disappearances. And the reason why I chose these cases in particular is because of just the nature of which this person disappeared. And the first one that I'm starting off with is actually very interesting and it's very weird um because it involves youtube like everything well not everything else because you know it's just youtube it's just kind of like a hive of like weirdness because if you you know if you're like me that has trouble sleeping sometimes at night and you and you don't fucking you have two options of that you can either go play video games or go on youtube and i do both um but sometimes when i go on youtube and if you just click this one video Your recommended videos or the videos I autoplay after just start to get a little bit more weird and weirder as you digress. And then you could just dive into a fucking hole of the weirdness of YouTube. Okay, so now this first story, because I'm going to be going over quite a few stories. I believe four or five. I'm not too sure yet. Um, I mean, I am sure because I have them for you. It's just some of them can be a little weird and Fuck it. Who cares? This is a strange talk podcast. So thank you. I want to give you a big thank you for listening and taking the time to listen to today's episode. That is strange disappearances. Um, without you, without you, the listener. Okay. Are you listening to me? I want you to look, I want you, okay. If you're at home and you're cleaning and you're listening to this or you're taking care of your kids, I want you to leave them alone. Okay. I want you to leave them alone. I want you to go to the bathroom, lock the door. Okay. Are you doing that? Are you doing it? Okay. Now look in the mirror. And I want you to tell yourself, you are your own special rainbow. Anyways, so let's get back to the story at hand. So the first story that I'm going to be talking to you about is called 112 Dirtbag, or 112 Dirtbag, whatever you want. And you're probably thinking, like, why the hell is it 112 Dirtbag? What the fuck does it have to do with the disappearance? Well, listen to the story, okay? And you will find out why. So... Mara Murray disappeared the evening of February 9, 2004, after crashing her car on Route 1112 in Haverhill, hmm, 112, New Hampshire. A nursing student at the University of Massachusetts Amherst, Murray left campus early that afternoon after parking her car and emailing her professors and work supervisor that she was taking a week off due to a family emergency. But there was no family emergency at all. Due to her preparations and lack of evidence of foul play, police investigators initially suggested she may have wanted to disappear and treated her case as a missing persons investigation. But her family and friends have maintained that she was abducted. They did not think that she wanted to intentionally disappear. But as we digress and uh, you know we weave this web of disappearances, nah, we will probably see that maybe she did or maybe she didn't. But let's continue. In November 2003, three months before her disappearance, Moray was questioned by police regarding improper use of a credit card under $250. She had used a discarded credit card number to purchase $79.02 worth of delivery of pizza. The charge was continued in December to be dismissed after three months of good behavior with her credit card. On Thursday, February 5, 2004, at around 10.30 p.m., Mora spoke on the phone with her older sister, Kathleen, while on break from her campus job. They discussed Kathleen's relationship problems with her fiancé. Hours later, still on her shift, Maura broke down into tears. Her supervisor escorted her back to her dorm room around one twenty a.m., telling her, it's okay, Dan, now. I don't know why I'm going to keep talking in this Louisiana, like, Bayou-type voice, I'm sorry. But it's just, like, water boy. I just keep thinking water boy, because I fucking love that scene. <laughs> uh <clears throat> i if you've never seen Waterboy, then whatever maybe you are a better person than i but who cares um but there's a scene in the movie Waterboy where the mom is looking at old pictures of the book after she comes to realize that she's been really strict with her son and he needs to have his life can't always be there for her and um uh, she she opens up the first page and there's like this really like handsome looking dude like super fucking buff dick out and his next next to his mom he's like oh my god is that daddy? No that's my old high school boyfriend <laughs> oh okay and then he turns the page and you see like this fucking dumb looking fool with like his eyes crossed over and she's like who's that? That's your daddy <laughs> his name is Roberto. Roberto? And then at the end of the movie when the dad shows up like fucking um it's like hey it's me your daddy roberto (laughs) i fucking love that part anyways um i fucked this episode up enough so the chart oh on thursday february 5th um she discussed with her sister about her fiance she broke down to tears the um and uh, some dude, the, the, her supervisor, escorted her back to her dorm room at around 1.20 a.m. Mora apparently did not share with anyone the reason for her breakdown. So she was very kept to herself around the whole situation. On Saturday, February 7th, Mora's father, Fred Moray, arrived in Amherst. That afternoon, they shopped for a used car and later went to dinner with a friend of Mora's. Mora dropped her father off at his motel room and, borrowing his Toyota Corolla, returned to the campus to attend a dorm party with her friend. At 2.30 a.m., she left the party and drove the Corolla with the intention of returning it to her father at, back at the motel. At 3.30 a.m. en route to his motel, she struck a guardrail on Route 9 in Haveley. The police questioned her but didn't file any charges or administer a sobriety test. So, to say the least, she got lucky. She was driven back to her car to her father's motel and stayed in his room the rest of the night at four forty nine a m She called her boyfriend in Oklahoma to discuss the accident Sunday morning. Fred Moray determined the auto damage was covered by his insurance, and he rented a car and dropped Mora off at the university and departed for Connecticut at eleven thirty p m that evening. Fred phoned Mora reminding her to obtain the forms pertaining to the accident on Monday from the registry of motor vehicles. They agreed to talk again Monday night to discuss the forms and together fill out the insurance claim over the phone. Around midnight Monday, February 9th, shortly after speaking with her father, Mora used her personal computer to search MapQuest. Remember that, MapQuest? For directions to the Berkshires and Burlington, Vermont. At 1 p.m., Mora emailed her boyfriend and said, I got your messages, but honestly, I didn't feel like talking to much of anyone. I promise I will call you today, though. At around 1 p.m., she also made a phone call to inquire about renting a condominium in the same Bartlett, New Hampshire area. The condo association her family had vacationed at in the past. Telephone records indicate the last call was three minutes. The call lasted three minutes, I'm sorry. The owner did not rent the condo at Mora. I'm sorry, did not rent the car to Mora. Fuck. Then Mara called a fellow a fellow nursing student for reasons unknown. At one twenty four p.m. Mara ow I just hit my keyboard. At one twenty four p.m. Mara emailed a work supervisor at the nursing school facility that she would be out of town for a week due to a death in her family, and that she would contact them when she returned. But there was no death in the family at all. So this was a little strange. At 2.05 p.m., she called a number which provides pre-recorded information about booking hotels in Stowe, Vermont. She listened to this information for approximately five minutes. At 2:18 p.m., she telephoned her boyfriend and left a voice message promising him that they would talk later. This call ended after one minute. In her car, she packed clothing, toiletries, a call, and college textbooks. When her room was searched later, campus police discovered most of her belongings were packed in boxes and that all the art from the walls were removed. It is disputed whether she packed them that day or if they were merely still packed from her recent return from winter break. Around 3.30 p.m., she drove off the campus in her black Saturn sedan. At 3.40 p.m., Mora withdrew $280 from an ATM. CCTV footage indicates she was alone. This withdrawal nearly emptied her bank account, although she was due to receive paychecks in the coming days. She then purchased nearly $40 worth of alcohol at a nearby liquor store, including Bailey's Irish cream, Kahlua, vodka, and a box of Franza wine. Footage also shows she was alone when she made that purchase. At some point in the day, she obtained Registry of Motor Vehicle Accident Report Forms, as they were later found in the car that she was in. More than left Amherst, presumably via Interstate 91 North. She called to check her voicemail at 4.37 p.m., the last recorded use of her cell phone. To date, there is no indication she had informed anyone of her destination or evidence she had chosen one. So she was basically winging it at this point. It would evidence suggests. like she had no idea what she was intending to do, or what she were where she was going. Sometime after seven p.m., a Woodsville, New Hampshire resident heard a loud thump outside of her house. Though her window, um, though, through her window, she could see a black Saturn sedan up against a snowbank along Route One Twelve, also known as Wild. I'm gonna fuck up this word also known as Wild Amanuska, Amanuska, Amanusuk Road. The car pointed west on the eastbound side of the road. She telephoned the Grafton County Sheriff's Department at 7.27 p.m. to report the accident. At about the same time, another neighbor saw the Saturn as well as someone walking around the vehicle. She witnessed a third neighbor pull up alongside the Saturn. That neighbor, a school, bus, a school bus driver returning home, noticed the young woman was not bleeding but cold and shivering. He offered to telephone for help. She pleaded with him not to call the police and assured him she'd already called AAA. AAA has no record of any such call. Knowing there was no cell phone reception in the area, the bus driver continued home and phoned the police. His call was received by the sheriff's department at 7.43 p.m. He was unable to see Mora's car while he made the phone call, but did notice several cars pass on the road before the police arrived. At 7.46 p.m., a Haverhill police officer arrived at the scene. No one was inside or around the car at the time. The car's windshield was cracked on the driver's side and both airbags, airbags had deployed. The car was locked. Inside and outside the car, he discovered red stains that looked to be red wine. Remember, she bought a box of Franza wine. <laughs> the, the, the trashy, classy wine, because it's a box of wine. Um, the officer found a damaged box of Franza wine on the rear seat. In addition, he found a AAA card issued to Mauro Moray. Blank cash reports, forms, gloves, compact discs, makeup, two sets of map quest driving directions, one to Burlington, Vermont, another to Stowe, Vermont, Maura's favorite stuffed animal, and not without peril, a book about mountain climbing in the White Mountains. Missing were Maura's debit card, credit cards, and cell phone, none of which have been located or used since her disappearance. At 8 to 8.30 p.m., a contractor returning home from franconia saw a young person moving quickly on foot eastbound on route 112 about four to five miles east of where mora's vehicle was discovered he noted that the young person was wearing jeans a dark coat and a light colored hood he didn't report it to police immediately due to his own confusion of dates only discovering three months later when reviewing his work records that he spotted the young person the same night mora disappeared just before 8 p.m., EMS and a fire truck arrived to clear the scene. By 8.49 p.m., the car had been towed to a local garage. At about 9.30 p.m., the responding officer left a rag believed to have been part of Mora's emergency roadside kit, was discovered stuffed into the Saturn's muffler pipe. Authorities were only referred to Mora as missing the next day, almost 24 hours after she was last seen. It has been speculated that Maura's disappearance is linked to her credit card fraud. As both car accidents in Hadley and Haverhill, 38 hours later, involved alcohol and occurred less than three months after the continuance. Her family disputes the connection. Now you're probably wondering why I dis- the story of this case is called 112 Dirtbag. Now the reason for that is because during the time She was missing, leading up to her, I mean, after her disappearance, there was interviews with the family of Maura Murray. And in one of the interviews, her father happened to say, okay, that there was probably some dirtbag who kidnapped my daughter. Okay, now remember that. There was some dirtbag, he said. So there was a video uploaded by a user ironically enough, called 112 Dirtbag. Now, if you remember, Maura Murray's car was found on Route 112, okay? So on February 9th, 2012, nine years after her disappearance, on the anniversary, okay, nine-year anniversary of when Maura Murray went missing, a user by the name of 112 Dirtbag uploaded a video of Maura Murray's disappearance. It was taken down hours later. 112 was the number of the street she disappeared on, Furthermore, Maura's father said that she might have been kidnapped by some dirtbags in an interview. Like I said, what purpose this video serves to the case is unknown. Um, but in the video, I'm going to play it, but I'm just going to describe what's in the video because it's there's really not that much to it. He did upload other videos, but those are taken down, so I have no way of getting them. Just this video, for some reason, was the one that I could find because it was constantly um, uh, passed around. On the internet because of its creepy nature but in the video there is a man he's wearing glasses his teeth are pretty fucked up i'm pretty sure he's missing a few if i'm not mistaken um he's a very old man not a very old man but i would say he looks like at the time of the video he looks like he was maybe about late 50s maybe um pretty bad with age i don't know because i'm 30 years old and people still tell me i look like i'm 22 so i don't know i have that baby face type of thing which is good but it's also bad because i feel like people don't take me fucking serious because i still look like a child but in the video all he's doing is just simply there's piano music classical piano music playing and he's just laughing. Like, as soon as the video starts, he starts laughing in a very maniacal, very, like, 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 not like that. But he's laughing, like, but like a very evil laugh. And he's just laughing. And the video, I believe, is like about, like, uh, how long is the video? It's about like a minute and two seconds. And all he's doing is just standing there, sitting and facing the camera and laughing evilly. And it goes on for that long. And as he's laughing, the music is playing. Once it gets to about the minute mark, he stops, stares at the camera for a few seconds, and smiles, and then it fades to black. And in the writing, you see the words "Happy Anniversary." Now, you can decide for yourself. All you have to do is just search on YouTube "112 Dirtbag" to discover if this is related to it or not, or if it's just simply a crude fucking joke made by the guy. He did make another video because I do remember seeing about this case. Also, I want to. I know I'm jumping and jumping, but also I want to give a big thanks to at Rocky, the collector who sent me this case. I have heard about it, but I did not know that the video was linked to that. I did The way I heard about it was because I saw the video by 112 dirtbag a long time ago from another video, but they didn't really go too much into the case of how it could be linked to it. They just said that there's a creepy guy in this video and um, and they just mentioned that he might be linked to like a serial killer or he might be linked to some weird case, but they didn't actually dive so much into what it could be pertaining to but thank you to Rocky the Collector for sending me this Uh, stay awesome you got that big dick energy anyways so I'm gonna be playing the video and like I said it's just him laughing so I wanted to tell you what he's doing because you're not really gonna get much of it but I'm gonna play the video for you right now (laughs) (laughs) Hahaha. (laughs) Hahaha. 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 Haha. 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 H Said in the video, it's weird. Um, towards the end of the video, when he gets silent, he just stops, smiles, and then winks, and then it fades to black. And then the writings, the text comes up saying happy anniversary. Now, this man uploaded it on the anniversary of Maura Moray's disappearance nine years after. Now, police got wind of this and they decided, hey, let's investigate this guy. He might be a suspect, but they found no evidence leaking him to the disappearance or to any crime whatsoever so he's kind of like on the list still i think but they're they don't really have any evidence to prosecute him with um now here's what the story kind of takes a confusing and weird turn um, toward the end of 2004 a man allegedly gave Mora's father a rusty stained knife that belonged to the man's brother nobody knows who this brother that they're speaking of at least there wasn't any name that i could find whatsoever on it who had a criminal past and lived less than a mile from where Mora's car was discovered on route 112 his brother and his brother's girlfriend were said to have acted strangely after morris disappearance nothing was ever brought up again after that though unfortunately so it kind of just dies there in october of 2006 volunteers led a two-day search within a five-mile radius of where mora's vehicle was found in the closet of an a-frame house cadaver dogs allegedly went bonkers identifying the possible presence of human remains a sample of the carpet was sent to the new hampshire state police the Arkansas group Let's Bring Them Home offered a $75,000 reward in 2007 for any information that could solve her disappearance. In July of 2008, volunteers led another two-day search through wooded areas in Haverhill. The group consisted of dog teams and licensed private investigators. Senior Assistant Attorney General Jeffrey Sturzlin said in February of 2009 that the investigation is still active. Moore's disappearance has been the subject of intense interest and speculation on blogs, social media, internet forums, and of course, podcasts. And that is the first story of strange disappearances. And it's sad because, well, I mean, I know I said on This Week in Crimes episode that I enjoy these. It's not that I enjoy other people's miseries, so I don't want to say that. It's, I like them because I find them more fascinating because nobody can find them. But I do know, I don't want to make light of the fact that there's victims involved in this and they're uh they suffer through this because that is the worst part of these disappearances is that there's no body there there's nothing so you kind of i'm sure the family has to deal with like false hope of like maybe she is alive maybe she's somewhere and just doesn't want to contact us or she's probably dead but i don't have a bury i don't have a body to bury i have nothing and so i can't imagine just struggling with having to face that just the just the nature of like not knowing the the unsure like that sucks (laughs) and fucking sucks but um speaking of strange disappearances you know it's a really good movie i know i'm going completely off topic but if you've never seen the movie or you kind of been on the fence about it watch it it is a very good movie it's about a disappearance but you know they find them not to spoil the movie but that's not the spoil of the movie the spoil is the actual very ending and stuff it's really good called prisoners it's with Hugh Jackman Jake Gyllenhaal and it's a really fucking good movie I I think it was one of the best movies of that year that had came out that I seen and I don't see why I didn't get enough attention I know some people hated the ending but I kind of like that I kind of liked it because it, it left you with like what if or what's going to happen but it was a really really fucking good movie so if you have the time you can go rent it. You have no excuse for why you can't watch the movie. There's, We live in the digital age, people. We're, we're, we get it fast. And when I want it, give me, give me now, now. So check out the movie Prisoners. It's a very good movie. Really good. Um, it deals with the subject matter of child abduction and molestation. So if you're not too into that or you have trouble watching those types of movies, you don't see anything. It's not graphic in that nature. But... Um, What I loved about the movie, it's about a man um, played by Hugh Jackman that wants and will stop at nothing to get his children back. And it's a a very good thing because it shows kind of like the duality of like you have good intentions, but you can become a monster when you get stuck and lost and and you succumb to your rage. But that's what I loved about the film because I honestly feel like – I mean, I don't know if I'd go as far as do that. But I know that if anything were to happen to my child, uh, because I am a father, I have a two-year-old daughter – I know I would probably stop at nothing to get my daughter back. And you, what I like about the film is because it, it shows kind of like the realness of the, of what a family deals with when their child is missing, because I don't think a lot of movies show that it always just focuses on. Cause I remember there was a movie that came out in the nineties. I remember my, cause my dad was like a fan of like Mel Gibson for some reason. <laughs> And we went to go watch this movie called Ransom. I don't know if you ever heard of that movie. But that, that movie is like a fucking over the top. This one, Prisoners, has a realistic approach to it. Although not super, not grounded in realism. But it is somewhat of a realistic approach. Especially how it shows the mother. And her, she just fucking falls into depression. But having said that, I think I fucking uh, fucked. Like, not fucked. But I, <laughs> I think I've passed too much time already. So we're going to move into the next story. Now, this next case is a very weird one. It's just all around strange, and you'll hear why as I get into it. But just know that it, it is a little conspiracy type of thing. So if that is isn't your bag, then, you know what, well, fuck off. But <laughs> I'm sorry, that's fucking mean. But no, seriously, it, it does get a little weird, and you'll see why. But this is the case of Dennis Martin. On June 14, 1969, Father's Day weekend, Dennis Martin and his family was out on a camping and hiking trip they took every year in the Great Smoky Mountains. On this day, the family had stopped off at a grassy mountain highland meadow and popular stop-off point along the Appalachian Trail known as Spence Field. As the adults sat out on the grass chatting, Dennis, his brother, and two other boys on the trip thought it would be amusing to play a prank on their parents. They decided that they would split up, go out into the woods, and then simultaneously jump out from different directions to startle their adults And what was meant to be just a harmless prank. Three of the boys went one way, and Dennis, who was the youngest, went the other. The reason he had been chosen to be on his own was that he was wearing a highly visible bright red shirt. Just as planned, the three older boys jumped out and scared the adults, but then the men asked where Dennis was. Since the other boys had seen him just a few minutes earlier, they assumed that he had merely missed his cue, and so they waited for him to jump out of the trees as well, but Dennis never did. Dennis's father, Bill Martin, went out to get his son, expecting that he would be there hiding in the bushes as he had been instructed to do so, but an immediate search of the area showed no signs of Dennis, and calls into the woods went unanswered. Increasingly worried, Bill and Dennis's grandfather, Clyde Martin, hiked out in different directions farther and farther from the place where Dennis had last been seen, and still yet they found nothing. Park rangers were notified and a search was launched that would last until nightfall, when heavy rain began to come down along with thunder, which hampered efforts to find Dennis, and the search was called off until the following day with still no trace of where Dennis had gone off to. In a rather ominous twist, a mere hours after Dennis had gone missing, a family named the Keys reported that they had been hiking around six miles from Spencefield when they had heard a boy scream. The son also claimed to have seen movement in a bush, which he had first thought it was a bear, but turned out to be a man walking in the woods with something apparently slung over his shoulder. As spooky as this may seem, authorities determined that the location was too far away from Spencefield to possibly have anything to do with Dennis within the time frame of events. And it really sucks because it just, like, it very well could have been Dennis's body that that dude was fucking claiming over. But of course, the cops are like, oh, you saw a spooky figure uh, just walk out of the bushes with something that looked like somewhat of a six-year-old boy named Dennis Martin? Ah, it's probably nothing. (laughs) In the following days, the search efforts would quickly grow in size to hundreds of people scouring the area, including park rangers, locals, volunteers, the FBI, National Guard, and even Green Berets and um, and psychics, I was going to say physics, <laughs> along with bloodhounds and helicopters. And meanwhile, the news of the disappearance had started making major national headlines. Since Dennis was described as robust, healthy boy with plenty of hiking experience and white, it was thought that he was alive and would be found in short order. But continuing heavy rains flooded flooding roads as well as thick fogs made efforts very difficult. For their part, Dennis's parents posted a hefty reward for any information leading to find their son. And they said, please find him. He's white. He shouldn't be missing for this long. As the weeks went by, hope that the missing boy had survived dwindled. A few possible traces of the boy turned up in the form of small footprints and a pair of boy's underwear found in the woods near Spencefield, but it was determined that the possibility that the footprints were linked to Dennis was remote, and Dennis's mother even said the underwear did not belong to her son. The search would stretch on for months with no trace of Dennis found, although the manpower behind efforts had withered away considerably, and it was largely assumed by frustrated authorities that he was likely dead. Rumors and theories swirled as to what could have become of Dennis Martin. One idea was that he had been kidnapped, but no one could figure out a motive for such a thing, nor who could have orchestrated it with such perfect timing. He also may have gotten lost, but this seems odd considering he was meant to wait right near the field and pop out to surprise his parents. Many believe that Dennis could have been the victim of an animal attack, but then this couldn't be because there were no signs of a struggle where Dennis was last seen. If Dennis were attacked, there would have at least been drag markings on the floor in the area Dennis was hiding in, or even a scream, yet there were no tracks whatsoever. In the end, Dennis Martin was never found, and absolutely no trace of him has ever turned up. His odd case remains open to this day. Over the years, though, some bizarre details of the case have turned up. Author and researcher David Polides Most well known for his investigations into mysterious disappearances and his series of books on the matter, The Missing 411, interviewed author Dwight McCarter, author of Lost, a ranger's journal of search and rescue, who had a strange tale to tell about the Martin case. McCarter claimed that during the search for Dennis, the special forces units had been called in and had barely communicated at all with other authorities rangers or civilian searchers instead working on their own as if they had their own agenda and that they had been heavily armed as if expecting something big to happen what could this mean another weird detail is that the lead fbi investigator on dennis martin's case an agent named jim reich later apparently committed suicide for unknown reasons okay that's pretty fucking suspect if you you know i mean shit who just like for no fucking reason just decides to kill themselves um so get your tin hats get your tinfoil hats ready for this one though as the case gets even more weirder in 2014 on a website called tales of the weird a user by the name of harold cleveland posted a comment on a thread discussing the dennis martin case cleveland wanted to shed some light on the case and this is what he said to all concerned i have read some incredibly Unformed and ignorant comments here, and I feel it's my responsibility to help out when appropriate. My name is Max, and I am a retired Army SOCOM commander. I spent 26 years in service with most of them attached to 10th Mountain Division in Colorado. Our special forces are never called to assist in civilian operations. That falls to the local National Guard and approved by the state governor. The fact that they were armed as well is another huge no-no. During my command and every other mission, I was aware of we were not allowed by federal protocol to do either. Something is very wrong with this missing kid scenario. I've done some research on this case, both while on active duty and after my retirement. The inside facts of this case depict a frightening investigation. Bottom line is that searching started within a few minutes of the boy's disappearance and lasted three months with every resource manageable being deployed. Don't even start with the terrain was difficult, holes and caves and cliffs and creeks, etc. Our special troops can find almost anything, anytime and in any terrain. We have the highest technology available worldwide and easily the best training and real world, wartime and mission specific experience that the normal civilian populace can scarcely imagine. After studying this case, the fact that no trace of the boy was ever found is mind boggling. The Green Berets that were tasked in this search were there for a specific reason. They were armed for a specific reason. I can't and won't say why because my oath documents won't allow it, but I will remind you of these facts. Nationwide, there have only been four occasions where the special forces were brought in on a civilian missing persons case. Two of those involved a possible armed perpetrator. The other two were this case and another similar to it about three years later and regionally nearby. This is out of thousands of missing cases since the early 60s when our special troops were born. There is no such thing as, well, they were training nearby Any anyway, and nope. We as commanders were never allowed to divert orders unless the division general officer, at least a one-star within SOCOM, approved it. For that to happen, it must be for reasons that have a direct effect on our national security. No missing persons case has ever been on that level, ever, based on its own merit. My research proved that to my own eyes. In conclusion, this case goes way beyond a simple missing boy. Let me put it this way, to you skeptics out there. In 1969, same year as the case... In the southern jungles of Cambodia, we'd lost a man on team maneuvers one night. This was in some of the worst weather and impossible terrain known in this world. His tracks were instantly washed away, and nighttime operations were notoriously difficult as a rule. After a week's time, it was our dogs that finally tracked him. They live for these missions, and they love it. In the Martin case, the dogs just lay down, whining, and refused to search several sets of dogs of different breeds. The FBI's second-in-command told me this is in person. That fact alone promotes the high strangeness factor. These cases are far from normal and must be reinvestigated to ensure that the horror that this family went through never happens to anyone again. When it's your child that slips off for just a minute and panic sets in and sets are immediately deployed in great mass you would expect to find the child pretty quick. But when they just flat disappear like smoke, as in this case, it baffles even the most experienced of us and breaks our hearts as well. I hope this hideous event never happens to any of you, for I have seen it many times, firsthand, and you just cannot imagine anything worse. God bless and thanks for reading. That was the comment that Harold Cleveland said, who claims he was part of the Special Forces And is now retired but this comment was made back in 2014. Now the reason I chose to mention this comment in the first place is after having done my research I did find out that the special forces did indeed help with the search for Dennis Martin but they did it alone no one knows why they were there to begin with no one knows why they called like no one even has record of who put in the call to have the special forces unit even in the area. Now after doing more digging I found out that there was records of the incidents of when the Green Berets were out there. And these are all, and this, I found it on Reddit. Um, I guess it's from David, I don't even know how to actually say his name. David Palleds, I want to say. Paulides? Paulides? I'm going to say Paulides. Uh, It's all based around his book, Missing 411, which tackles this case. It's a book that has um, a bunch of cases of strange disappearances um, or just people who disappeared under strange circumstances, circumstances. Now I'm going to read snippets of what the actual section is talking about. So here it goes. The green berets were called and responded to the Dennis Martin disappearance. They didn't communicate with other searchers and there are no documents indicating who called them or what their mission was. They failed to respond to FOIA documents. A news broadcast from yesterday explaining the Dennis Martin disappearance. Fairly accurate, but leaving out vital information. We did interview Dwight McCarter, and he told us that he believed that Dennis was abducted. The information about the Green Berets training nearby is interesting, but not factual. We reviewed every FOIA document, and there is not one note about who called them and authorized their team to land by helicopter inside the park. They wouldn't work with NPS personnel, and they searched alone. The segment does not include an interview with Mr. Martin, Dennis's father, something we were able to accomplish. Dennis's father had been lied to so many times by the press, park services, and others. He doesn't trust any of them. And this is that was taken from the chapter in the book, Missing 411. Now, this is from an interview with Art Bell, on midnight in the desert which is um if you don't know who art bell is art bell was a man i believe started in the 80s he was a radio host that talked had a radio show based around paranormal conspiracies and um serial killers and he talked all about this so after a couple days the green berets show up via helicopter into the park this is him interviewing someone they land they get out and they set up a base with their own communications The park rangers came over and say, hey, we could team up together. We could work since we know the park, blah, blah, blah. And they said, nope, we work alone. And contrary to what you will hear out there by some people, there was never anything definitive about who called the Green Berets in. Because I have a report that's about four inches thick and I've gone through it six times and nobody wants to stake a claim about who called them and why they were there. Two times I filed FOIA requests to the department in the army asking for the order for the green beret team on the date two times i never even got a response it wasn't a denial it was no response did somebody have a very close high place friend in the military if they did it's not in any report i ever saw by the way um, art bell was the one that asked that did somebody have a very um, close high place friend in the military Now, this is an interview that Polides did on Coast to Coast AM with George Noray. Nori. I don't know who that is. So if you know who he is, let me know who he is because I have no idea who George Noray is. But apparently he has a radio show called Coast to Coast AM. Or if he did, I don't know if it's still around. But this is what the interview, what Polides said in the interview. In the middle of the first week, in came a couple of Huey helicopters filled with Green Berets. Now, this time, McCarter tells me that it was the oddest thing he's ever seen. The Green Berets didn't want anything to do with the park service. They didn't want any escorts through the park who knew the park and knew the area that wanted to be searched. The Green Berets set up their own telecommunication system and told everyone to just stay away from them. They'll search on their own. They were there for a week and nobody knows what they found, what they were looking for other than Dennis. This is another one of those things where where we filed freedom of information requests and never got anything. Now, nothing about this ever made the press. There's also the statement Polides made in an interview with George Norre on Coast to Coast AM, which doesn't have anything to do with the report, but it is related. When this book came out, that's David Polides talking about his Polides. Polides. God, I don't know how to fucking say his last name. Paludes, um, on This is him giving the interview about his book and about the case of Dennis Martin. When this book came out, this was the cornerstone case, and it was all backed with fact. Because I had the news article, I had the report, I had everything laid out to a T, and I had Dwight McCarter's testimony. So we held a press conference in Knoxville, and we got every major news organization, ABC, NBC, CBS, and Fox to come, and they asked every question under the sun. And we had displays, laid it out perfectly. It was just about the dentist's disappearance. And do you know all of them left, except one news agency? And this one reporter said, Dave, I gotta tell you. This will never make the air. The parks mean too much to this local community, and what it means is $800 million a year to the local area around the city of Knoxville and the surrounding regions. And do you know, George, nothing about this ever made the press, though. So that's why the Dennis Martin case is so strange, because of the fact that the Green Berets Special Forces Unit were actually called in to help, supposedly help, now, see, that's the weird part is we don't know why they were there. They claim they were there to help in the efforts of trying to search for Dennis Martin. But that's the thing. No one really knows. And I get it. This is an internet comment. It's not necessarily mean that it's true. But the username, um, Harold Cleveland, did shed some light on that. Now, you like I said, you can take that with a grain of salt. That doesn't necessarily mean he says who he says he is, you know. That's the weird part of it. But the fact that the special forces units indeed were there back in 1969 to help search in the efforts for Dennis Martin. But the fact that they never communicated with any other agency out there is very strange indeed. So could there be possibly a government cover up? I mean, we'll never truly know because it's 2019 and we still have no clue of what happened to Dennis Martin. So let's move on to the next case. So this next case is almost similar to that of the book and the film that it was later adapted in to is closely resembles Gone Girl. Um, so says the article and case that is very disturbing indeed um, and a very, very um interesting case nonetheless. And it is a very strange disappearance. So obviously that's why I'm including it in this episode. Um, and is that of Joan Risch. Joan Risch had a child, tragic childhood with both of her parents perishing in a fire while Joan was out visiting family. Following their death, she lived with the foster family. A Boston Herald article from 1993 reported that Joan had been sexually molested by her foster father. In 1954, Joan met her future husband, Martin, at a Harvard football game. They were both Brooklyn-born and hit it off immediately. Joan ultimately left her career as an editorial assistant at a publishing company in New York City to settle down with Martin and start a family. The young couple had two children, Lillian and David, before moving to a modern home on an old Bedford Road in Lincoln, Massachusetts. Joan was a housewife while Martin was a Fitchburg Paper Company executive. Joan's mother, while her foster mother, had this to say about the couple I think they were extremely happy. They had a beautiful home, two lovely children, and they were congenial companions, as far as I know. Alice Natris, who had a long divorced her ex-husband and the man who said to have molested Joan, and that's the uh, foster mother's name, Alice Natris or Natras. On October twenty-fourth, nineteen sixty-one, Martin went on a business trip to New York, leaving his wife Joan at home with their children. The morning was an uneventful one. Joan took four-year-old Lillian to the dentist before returning home for lunch. Joan was such a generous woman that not only did she pay for her own family's dental care, but she continued to pay for her foster sister's dental care. She often worried about Alice's financial situation after leaving her ex-husband. When they came back home from the dentist, she put two-year-old David down for a nap. As David was napping, Joan sent Lillian over to the baker's house to play with their son, Douglas who was the same age as Lillian. The houses on Old Bedford Road were spaced far apart and were fenced off with large trees, giving the residents their privacy. What took place next is shrouded in mystery and conspiracy. At approximately 4.15 p.m. that afternoon, Lillian arrived back home. Moments later, she ran back to the Baker residence. When Douglas's mother, Barbara opened the front door. Lillian wailed that her mother had disappeared and that there was red paint all over the kitchen. Barbara accompanied Lillian back home and was met by a particularly shocking scene. What Lillian had seen was not red paint, but it was actually blood. The walls were spattered with spots of blood, and there was a small puddle of blood on the floor. The blood led to David's nursery, where the toddler remained untouched. It then led out to the car and the trunk of the car. The investigators noted that it appeared as though some of the blood had been wiped up. The phone had been ripped from the wall and tossed into a wastebasket while a phone book sat nearby. It was opened on the page of emergency numbers, although phone records showed that no calls had been made. DNA indicated that the blood belonged to Joan and that it had most likely come from a superficial wound. On the wall beside the phone, investigators found an unidentified bloody thumbprint. Over the forthcoming years, over 5,000 people would be fingerprinted in an attempt to find a match, but to no avail. Nothing appeared to be out of place, and nothing had been stolen, ruling out robbery. In fact, other than the spots of blood in several locations and a tipped-over table, the house was particularly spotless and certainly didn't look like a violent struggle had ensued. The initial theory from investigators was that Joan had been abducted. However, eyewitness statements complicated this theory. Barbara Baker told police she had noticed Joan walking or running with her arms outstretched towards her car, which was parked in the driveway at around 2.50 p.m. She appeared to be carrying something red in one hand. From there, she turned back and walked towards her house. Another neighbor told police that at approximately three twenty p m she saw a gray Oldsmobile sedan parked behind Joan's own car as news of Joan's disappearance wended through the town of Lincoln. Police started to receive tips from those who believed they had seen her that fateful afternoon. Several motorists reported seeing a woman who they believed to be Joan. She had been walking along route one twenty eight in Waltham, situated nearby was the Cambridge Reservoir. Investigators placed much credence on these reports and had the water searched scrupulously in the hopes that it would turn up some clues. It was an unfruitful search. Another reported sighting was that about 2.15 p.m. on the afternoon Joan disappeared, a caller described seeing a woman who looked like Joan walking along the side of Route 2A, approximately 200 yards from her home. She was wearing a loose-fitting gray coat that came down to her knees and a handkerchief tied under her chin in a peculiar fashion. She was trying to hide her face. She was shuffling along and hunched over as though she were cold. Shortly after this sighting came another. This caller said they too saw somebody who matched the aforementioned description, although this caller said that the woman had blood on both of her legs. She was walking on Route 128 and appeared to be dazed the caller recollected that she was walking in a puddling manner with her head down. Could this have been Joan, and if so, what was she doing? In all of these reported sightings, the witnesses described her as wearing the same clothing and acting in the same obscure manner, trying to hide her face because she did not want to be seen. After these reported sightings, investigators searched extensively for this woman, making sure they checked each and every hospital. They were never able to confirm or deny if this were Joan. The case took an even more mysterious twist when investigators discovered that Joan had checked out numerous library books in the run-up to her disappearance. All of these books were about murders and disappearances. She checked out books such as The Hunt for Richard Thorpe. It is about a schoolboy who disappeared on purpose. Another was The Death of the Heart a novel about an orphan who dropped from sight. The book, which almost paralleled the so-called crime scene at the Risch household, however, was Into Thin Air, which follows the story of a woman who planted her own bloodstains in her home before disappearing. These discoveries sent the rumor mill running wild. Many people theorized that Joan, bored with her marital life after abandoning her publishing career in New York City, staged her own disappearance. The other theory is much less romanticized. Joan was the victim of a sadistic murder and her body is abandoned somewhere unfound. Her son, David, likes to think she's in heaven. Friends and family say that she was a devoted mother and a wife and who wouldn't dream of abandoning them. Over the years, Martin still held on to hope that one day his wife would return home. He came to believe she had potentially suffered amnesia and would one day remember who she truly was. He remained in the same marital home following her disappearance and kept it the same as it was before she disappeared. Despite the numerous crank calls he received, he refused to change his telephone number just in case Joan called. Fuck, people are so fucked up, dude. This is why we can't have nice things because people are just evil. She never did call and she never did return home. He refused to declare her dead. Martin Risch went to to his grave in 2009, never knowing what happened. To his wife. So what became of Joan? Could she have abandoned the life she made to start afresh? That's the theory that the adventurer in all of us likes to believe. Is it plausible? Very much so. It's certainly more alluring than the glaring alternative theory that she is dead. The bizarre vanishing became the center of one of New England's greatest mysteries of the 20th century, and to this date, nobody truly knows what happened to Joan Rich. Now, Here's another possible theory, but then again, it falls with the same adventurous theory or the romanticized theory of that she just started a new life. Possibly, possibly to well, maybe this kind of this because as I was reading this article and I was getting all the research and stuff because this is the most extensive information that they had um, that I could find. So again, a big thank you to at Rocky the Collector for sending me this one. But as I was um, reading through it, maybe just because. I am romanticizing it in a way or kind of making it into a film sort of like my theory is, and this could be a a good theory as to explain the reason for the blood was that she was secretly having an affair and maybe she did plan on uh, leaving with this man. And, um, and maybe she did it. Maybe she did not. Maybe she didn't want to leave. Maybe she just wanted to get away from her life because she was, she felt so unfulfilled because she wasn't, Um, Fulfilled in the matter of her marital life because she was a career woman and she felt, you know, that this marital life isn't for her. She can't just wake up and be at home and be um, cooking and cleaning and taking after these kids. She used to run a company. So, my theory is that she had an affair because it was something exciting and something new for her to do. And um, she wasn't feeling satisfied, maybe, with her partner. And she got pregnant and she had a miscarriage and she was trying to keep it a secret because I mean this takes place you know in a time where having an abortion was very very frowned upon so I imagine all the blood maybe she tried to do it herself and she had no way of explaining what this blood was or maybe she was an opportunist and she decided like hey you know what I could just make it look like I was murdered or I was kidnapped or some sort, you know, and, you know, they'll just think it's my blood and they'll never know. They'll be none the wiser. So that is my theory. Maybe, like I said, I am romanticizing it, but it is it is something that could be very plausible. And you could you could really picture that. I mean, really picture it. Maybe she was an opportunist and she decided Maybe she even tried to kill the baby herself, but she fucked up. She had a miscarriage or something, and she just didn't – she didn't have no way – she did not want to face the consequences of her actions because of what she did. I mean, how would you explain that without the the repercussions, you know? So I I like to think that maybe that was what she did. Now let's move on to the next case. This next case – Is the last one of this episode, so I hope you guys enjoyed what you guys have been hearing, but let's move on to this very last one, and it is of a man by the name of Brian Schaefer. It would be the ultimate Fool's Day prank, if only he had a punchline. Early on the morning of April 1st, 2006, Brian Schaefer and his friend William Clint Florence were wrapping up a night of celebration commemorating their completed final exams and the start of spring break at the Ohio State University College of Medicine. They had begun the night at the Ugly Tuna saluna and they were ending it in the same place, having gotten a ride back from Florence's friend, Meredith Reed. While they were enjoying a final round to close out the evening, Brian Schaefer somehow became separated from his friends. When the bar closed down at 2 a.m., Florence and Reed waited for him outside, but he never appeared. They assumed that he had simply gone home without telling them. The following Monday morning, he failed to arrive for a flight that he and his girlfriend had planned to take to Miami, where she thought he might propose. It was only then that Brian Schaefer was declared missing. Police began their search at the last place Brian Schaefer had been seen, which was the Ugly Tuna. What they found there was the beginning of a perplexing mystery because the bar was located in what was considered a high-crime neighborhood. He had been outfitted with a number of security cameras, including one which monitored the escalator that led to the entrance of the bar. On the security footage, Schaefer was seen standing outside the bar shortly before 2am talking to a pair of women. Then the cameras show him walking toward the bar's entrance. He has not been seen or heard from since. Those are the last images that anyone has ever seen of Brian. The bar had no other publicly accessible entrance or exit, and the only other way out was a service door out the back, which led to a construction site, which police believed would have been difficult to safely maneuver through even sober and during the daytime, let alone in the dark after a long night of heavy drinking. Police searched through security camera footage from several other nearby establishments to try to determine if and how Schaefer left the ugly tuna, but they saw no sign of him leaving. The search fanned out from the ugly tuna, and police investigated far and wide, even including the city's dumpsters and sewer system in their search. But not even the canine unit could find a trace of Brian. Schaefer's abandoned apartment was later burglarized, and police and his family were hoping the crime might have something to do with his disappearance. Unfortunately, it did not. Recently widowed and desperate to find his son, Schaefer's father consulted a psychic. He was told that Brian's body was resting in a water near a bridge. He spent hours waiting in the Olentangy River in Columbus with the with, with search party. Oh my god, it's because I practiced trying to say that damn word. It's Olentangy. Olentangy River. And I fucked it up anyways. <clears throat> anyways, but to no avail, the father was not able to find any body whatsoever. Uh, he wasn't even t- able to find his son. Um, and so the psychic is bullshit, just wasting your time, and it sucks. For months after his de- disappearance, Schaefer's girlfriend, Alexis Wagner, called his phone every night, though it went straight to voicemail. However, one night in September, she was thrilled to hear the phone ring at the other end of the line. It rang three times, and in her excitement, she called again, but there was no answer. But a ping from the cell phone was later traced to a cell tower in Hewlett, about 14 miles from Columbus, where Schaefer disappeared. Schaefer's cellular carrier later admitted that the ringing and the tower ping could have been a glitch in the system rather than a sign that Schaefer had turned his cell phone on. And almost everyone involved in Schaefer's life or who had been with him on the night of the disappearance agreed to take a lie detector test, except for Clint Florence. According to Florence's attorney, his client had nothing to hide and simply felt that he had told police all he could about the subject. That's a little shush back. The two women who Schaefer was last seen with were identified by police and cleared of any suspicions. They also stated that they were not asked to take a polygraph test. Now, they're probably wondering, well, if they have nothing to hide, why take a polygraph test? Because believe it or not, polygraph tests aren't truly... I mean. Even to in today's time now, they're not really seen as um as like factual evidence because even if you because the way they they monitor you when you're taking a polygraph test is they they ask you a question and based on your reaction to the question because you don't physically have to react. Um, I mean, obviously, if you physically react because there are what they have because there are people in the FBI and CIA who are body lie detectors. They just talk to you and they, based off your movements, your facial expressions, they can sort of tell because they train for years. But lie detector tests are not like used in court today. I know in the state of California, they're not really used in court because just if a person's heart rate starts jumping up, if they drink coffee, it could have a big impact on the results of a polygraph test. So that's why they're not really used. And um, I know I'm really divulging from the topic at hand. But uh, fun fact, everybody, fun fact. The lie detector test was actually invented to track ghosts. The inventor, <clears throat> I forgot his name, but the inventor of the lie detector, the polygraph test, wanted to use it to see if he could hear ghosts or I think track ghosts. And if it jumped, that meant there was a ghost in the vicinity of the polygraph test unit. I don't remember what he called it back then, but uh, believe it or not, that's you, Google it. Fucking Google it right now, and I guarantee you it's true. Same thing for the cereal Kellogg's. I, now we're super going off topic, but the cereal Kellogg's was actually invented by a guy who was a reverend because he suffered from chronic masturbation. He would constantly masturbate, and he felt if he made such a bland cereal, it would stop the person from wanting to masturbate any further. And He believed in his product so much that when he would go on his sermons um, and he would preach, he would, tell, he would give boxes of, of Kellogg's cereal. The cereal that we eat today was started because he wanted to stop people from masturbating. <laughs> okay, so let's get back on the topic. <clears throat> for years, the search for information about Brian, Brian Schaefer's fate continued. Posters of Schaefer were plastered everywhere, noting that the missing man had a distinctive tattoo and a black fleck on his left iris. Rewards were offered, tip lines were set up, and Eddie Vedder, the lead singer of Pearl Jam, one of Schaefer's favorite bands, even took a break between songs during a concert in Cincinnati to ask for any information about Schaefer's disappearance. Brian's father, Randy Schaefer, joined the families of other missing persons to successfully lobby the Ohio legislature to reform the state's law regarding missing person cases. Now Ohio has a more organized protocol for investigating missing person cases, a small relief for Schaefer's loved ones. In 2008, Randy Schaefer was struck by a branch while cleaning up debris from a windstorm in his backyard and died. In an online condolence book, someone wrote, To Dad, Love Brian, U.S. Virgin Islands, leading many to believe that Brian was alive and well. However, police later concluded that the note was posted from a publicly accessible computer in Franklin County, Ohio, and it was determined to be a hoax. Again, people are just fucking evil, and this is why we can't have nice things. This is why aliens don't visit us, because we're fucking evil. With no solid theories about what happened to Schaefer, Columbus police continued to follow up on even the most far-fetched leads, From alleged sightings in Sweden to a phone call from a woman at a Michigan restaurant who believed that Schaefer was her waiter. There have even been anonymous online tips that claim to know the location of the body, but investigations into the claims have proven fruitless. What became of Brian Schaefer remains a mystery to this very day. One theory suggests he left the country to start a new life, possibly playing in a Jimmy Buffett-style band, as had always been his dream. Others have suggest- suggested that he was more devastated by his mother's recent death than he let on and took his own life. Another possibility is that he befell an accident in the dangerous work site behind the bar and that the owners covered it up to avoid legal problems. Some people have even linked his disappearance to the supposed smiley face killer, which if you don't know who the smiley face killer is, uh, I might be doing an episode on him a theoretical serial killer proposed by retired New York City police detectives Kevin Gannon and Anthony Durrett, and and championed by a number of online amateur sleuths. Schaefer's disappearance fits part of the pattern of the alleged smiley face killer. Gannon and Durrett believe that a serial murderer or group of killers preys upon college-age men as they leave parties or bars. Corpses are often left next to the bodies of water. Of course, Schaefer, whether alive or dead, has yet to be found. It's also worth noting that most police departments dismiss the unifying theory of the smiley face killer, even in cases where bodies have been discovered, shocking up many of the deaths to accidental drowning. At this point, any connection between Brian Schaeffer's disappearance and the supposed killer remains conjecture. In 2018, the Ugly Tuna Saluna closed down and it is rumored to be undergoing construction to be converted into an office. Although Cadaver Dog searched the establishment way back in 2006 and found no sign of Schaefer's body in the building, one can't help but think that this will close one chapter of the investigation and potentially destroy key evidence. After all, we have no proof that Schaefer ever left the premises that night. To date, Brian Schaefer's fate remains a mystery with no promising leads in sight. So that's going to do it for this episode of Strange Talk Podcast. But before I go, I want to thank you guys again for choosing to listen to Strange Talk Podcast. Because although there are many true crime podcasts out there and there are other podcasts that you could spend your time with, I want to thank you for spending your time with Strange Talk Podcast. Thank you for spending some time with little old me but also i want to give a big well i don't want to say a big sorry i am somewhat sorry to the ladies at kills and chills for actually um getting the episode to work i did a system recovery and i was able to recover the files um at least my files because i had their audio files but it was just them because the way i record when i um do something like that when i record with another person like say at ripsaw 710 when we used to do a talk nerdy to me um i would record his through a different audio channel so they're separate and yeah so that's how i lost my audio but um, also so because apparently uh, i was listening to their recent episode they did last monday and they were like oh you know we were about to we were doing an episode for the patreon to announce the patreon that we just started and then strange talk podcast you know, put out on Instagram that. They- <laughs> so, anyways, I'm sorry, but to be fair, you guys even mentioned it in the episode. You guys should have at least told me, like, "Hey, we're gonna just do that episode," and then I would have just scrapped that episode altogether. But whatever, you know, it's fine. But hopefully, we can do it again sometime. And if you're a if you're a podcaster and you have your podcast and you want to team up i'm more than willing to team up with other podcasts because why not why not help each other out because this world is already filled with so many monsters and and just evilness let's kind of work together at least we can do something together i guess so if you have a podcast out there and you would want to be on mine or vice versa i would be more than welcome to i have yet to be invited to be on somebody else's podcast so you know why not but again, thank you for tuning into this episode. Strange Disappearances, episode 29. We're, we're almost one away from from episode 30. you know. And I, I know it's technically not episode 30 because I do that other segment which technically counts as an episode, but it's not an official episode. It's more where I read, uh, it's, which is This Week in Crime, where I bring you news from around the world or right here in good old America. But, you know, so be prepared for another one of those this Wednesday that's coming up. You know, so break apart your work week and, you know, it, 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 you know, I like to think I like to think that by doing those, I stop a person from just going postal at the job. <laughs> There's just one day they're just going to snap and just take everybody out. You know, so I like to think that I put a stop to it when they listen to This Week in Crime. <laughs> but again, thank you for tuning in to Strange Talk Podcast. Strange Talk Podcast is a weekly podcast where I, you know, dive into the mysterious macabre of true crime, paranormal, and sometimes conspiracies. I haven't done one in a while, so I may have a conspiracy coming up. But who knows? May or may not. I may or may not. Just depends on if I really want to do it or not. So thank you again. So if you want to reach me. You can do so via Instagram. Follow me on social media on Instagram at Strange Talk Podcast. If you want to send me a news article, you can do so through Instagram at Strange Talk Podcast. Or if you are old school and you want to keep it that way, you can do so via email at StrangetalkPodcast at Outlook.com. If you're a new listener, welcome to Strange Talk Podcasts. I hope you enjoyed what you heard. Go back and listen to all the other episodes, but be fairly warned. They are old, and they were when I was just starting out, and even now I still don't sound professional as much as I like to think I am. So, as always, stay strange, everybody. Stay fucking strange. Oh, also, too. <laughs> I've See, that's how professional I am. Also, too, let me know what you guys think of the new intro. Do you like it? If not, I'll go back to the old one. Tell me. I want to know. Please help me out. You guys can do a great deal of helping me out by telling me if you like this new intro, if you hated it, if it's too slow, if it takes up too much time. Be completely, brutally honest and just tell me. I won't cry that much. <laughs> So just tell me what you guys think of it and let me know. And also, too, if you are a new listener and you are listening to this on a podcast app that lets you and allows you to rate the podcast, that will help me out the biggest. That helps me out a lot because it helps me get recognized more. So it helps new people to see the podcast and also what helps me out even more is if you really truly enjoy strange talk podcast tell your friends tell your family tell your neighbors tell your tell your fucking dogs i don't care get the word out of strange talk podcast but the more because the more that you expand to different listeners it's like a virus it's like a good virus though you want to spread it all over Ooh, fuck yeah, spread it. but anyways i've talked enough so stay tuned for a new this week in crime for all the evilness that this world has to offer because you know that's that's kind of like a, a cool popular one not as popular as my 911 calls which i will be doing soon again but they are somewhat popular so again this is me signing off from strange talk podcast thank you for taking the time to listen and as always stay strange